everyone, and welcome to this episode of Mental Agility Podcast for Forensic Scientists, brought to you by MAPS, Midwestern Association of Forensic Scientists. I'm your host, Jen Dillon, and I'm excited to be bringing part two of the four agreements to you today. It's the long-awaited episode. (laughs) Uh, Remember that Part one of this episode went over the first two agreements of the book, The Four Agreements, written by Don Miguel Ruiz. The premise of the book rests on the idea that we are living a conditioned life. We were born and raised under certain conditions, and those conditions form the pretext of our behavioral patterns. The author is really asking us to set aside those conditioned behaviors and and really not even just set them aside, but maybe even take a look at them and ask if they're doing us any service. Are they behooving us in any way? And if they are being of service to us, then we may certainly retain those behaviors or agreements, right? If you begin to think about these, these behavioral patterns that we have as agreements that we've made with ourselves and with our society, with our family members, And so if they're very helpful to us, then we, of course, may participate in that agreement. But if they are not doing us any service, what can we do about that? And how can we create new agreements with ourselves? When we begin to practice the four agreements that we make with ourselves, we can begin to shift our reactions to the choices of others that they make around us, you know, we don't have control over choices that other people make. The only thing we have control over are the choices that we make and the reactions that we have to choices that others make. We'll begin to live life more objectively and become less affected by the external world around us. Remember, we can be in control of these reactions and our actions. The relationship that we have with ourselves and with others will, of course, shift as a result. So just a quick recap. Agreement number one is to be impeccable with your word, meaning to speak with integrity, say only what you mean, avoid using the word to speak against yourself or to gossip about others. Use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. Agreement number two Don't take anything personally. Nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. If you recall, that's my favorite agreement and the one I work on all the time. (laughs) So if you want a further recap on those two agreements, check out the last episode where I go in detail Uh, And the the premise really is to apply these agreements to our lives, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm trying to take a perspective of how to bring these agreements into the workplace and into the forensic field specifically. So without further ado, let's move on to agreement number three. It's another doozy. I told you they all are. Don't make assumptions. Find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. Communicate with others as clearly as you can to avoid misunderstanding, sadness, and drama. Doesn't that sound lovely? (laughs) So this agreement is about improving communication and seeking the truth. Learning to ask questions until you know the truth and learning how to use your voice to ask for what you want. So I guess first and foremost, we all need to take 
a proper assessment of ourselves and ask ourselves, what is it that we want? Of course, in the workplace, what we want versus what we need versus what we can have <laughs> are all very different things, right? I understand that we have to work within the framework of our organizations and follow the cultural standards that are set before us, follow, of course, the guidelines, the protocols, right? As forensic scientists working in an accredited laboratory, we know the meaning behind all of that. But what do we want? Meaning, how do we want to be treated? How do we decide what we want to make of our careers? What paths we want to take? Do we want to be a bench work analyst? Do we want to be a supervisor? Do we want to work on validations? Do we want to do research? Are we better suited to be educators? Do we want to work with the law enforcement community more or educate college age students? You know, I'm not trying to get anybody to quit their jobs, but just because we landed in a lab doesn't mean we have to stay in the lab. Some of us may really take a liking to the instrumentation and we end up working a lovely career with vendors. Asking ourselves what it is that we want and don't make the assumption with ourselves that what we started with is what we're stuck with, right? Making change is difficult. It's sometimes scary and uh, slow to make a shift, but really let's make sure that we're in the proper place, that we're in the proper discipline. Uh, if anybody knows my story, I started off working in the DNA unit I always had a love for the trace evidence unit, and when a position opened up, I went and took it. I, I didn't make the assumption that I was bound and determined to stay in the DNA unit. It was a tough choice. It meant leaving after five years. You know, I was a, a, a trained expert, court, court experience, all of those things, and stepping back into a world of being a trainee, you know, uh, finding that degree of humility to start over. Uh, it was a little bit of an identity crisis. I really will say that it was difficult to step back in that way, but it allowed me to explore an opportunity that would really have always been a, a what if in my world had I not taken it. I stayed in that unit for five years before I really realized that honestly the DNA unit was more satisfying to me. The work was something that I felt was more suited to my, my mindset and the work that I wanted to do for the forensic community. I really enjoyed testifying, and I have to say that in the five years, I know a lot of that was draining, but trace evidence examiners don't get to testify very often, and that was a big component that I was missing. I really enjoy teaching and communicating, hence I have this podcast, right? So knowing your own nature and the things that serve you best is really important. And so don't make assumptions with yourself that you've landed in the spot where you're stuck in, right? Now, working and dealing with other people, learning to communicate with others and ask the questions that maybe are necessary to be asked. The, the truth isn't always laid out to us in the easiest to interpret ways. Right? Sometimes there's an underlying message that isn't being conveyed and we have questions. What happens when we have questions and we don't get the answers, we don't ask the questions, what happens is that we make up answers in our mind. 
we have a void and our mind wants to fill it. And so we make up scenarios, stories, situations. This is how the rumor mill gets started, right? This is gossip. We've all been there. We've all experienced, ooh, there's a position opened. I heard so-and-so wants to take it. Do you think they'll put in for it? If they put in for that, then they'll transfer. That'll create an opening here and so-and-so will take it. Like that, that's like <laughs> a normal conversation that happens all the time in my lab system. I'm sure it happens everywhere. You know, it's not a unique story. Like what do we think is going to happen? And next thing you know, we've projected this reality that doesn't even exist about all these shifts that are going to occur. Learning to ask questions so that we don't fill in those voids with a false reality. And some of that is difficult for us. Some of us have trouble using our voice to ask those questions or to ask for what we want or need. Just remember that the way to keep yourself from making assumptions is to ask questions. Make sure that the communication is clear. If you don't understand, ask. Even when you think you know all there is to understand, don't assume that you do. That's a big one. Even when you think you know all there is to understand, don't assume that you do. Have that humility to check in again and again. There's a saying in my yoga community, when we think we know, we cease to grow, right? So having that humility of always asking questions, always, I, I think about it this way. I would take a math class in college, let's say, right? And I would think that I understood it and I would get A's on all my exams. And then I would take like, let's say Calc 1 and then I took Calc 2. And when I took Calc 2, all of a sudden, I understood Calc 1 in ways I never even knew I could understand. Because what I'm doing is I'm understanding on, on a whole new level. I'm truly applying it. So we say that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is having the information. Wisdom is being able to apply it in our daily lives. So a lot of us think that we know something but we're not really applying it. So that's why for this book, for example, I read it over and over because I know this information. I've read it a lot. I understand it, but intelligence is not the same as wisdom. Wisdom is the application of these philosophies into our daily lives. When we start to live this lifestyle, that's when we start to see the effects. It's one thing to say it out loud, it's another thing to do it, right? That's why we say actions speak louder than words. Have that humility. Keep checking in. We may understand things on a completely different level, so that's why we always go back to what we think we know so that we never cease to grow. We make the assumption that everyone sees life the way we do, and we assume that others think the way we think, feel the way we feel, judge the way we judge, and abuse the way we abuse. This is the biggest assumptions that humans make. So that's from the book. <sighs> that's a big one. We do think that everyone sees the world from our eyes. And the thing is, is that there are no two people who are alike, even identical twins. We have different bodies, minds, intellects. So we feel different things. We need different things to make us function at our highest. That's why there are so many different eating programs and dieting programs because physically different things work better for different body styles. There are different 
you know, forms of, of therapy for people to work out their emotions because people feel and emote in different ways. Intellectually, we learn differently. Everyone, we know, right? Some people listen better. Some people are visual learners. Some people need to read. Some people need to physically act upon doing it, right? And the way that we reason and judge is going to be unique as well. So we have to recognize this and we cannot make the assumption that others are going to experience the world in the same way that we do. And if I think about that in the simplest of terms, I think that's a really selfish perspective. To think that the world is supposed to cater to your likes and preferences versus recognizing that my likes and preferences are unique to me and what I dislike, someone else may love. I divorced someone. I didn't think that person was serving me and my lifestyle any longer. That doesn't mean that someone else isn't going to find that person and think that he is the greatest gift on earth made for them. They ride off into the sunset together. There's nothing wrong with the individual. It just simply wasn't fitting with my lifestyle any longer. It wasn't serving me and helping me to grow to be the best version of myself. We wanted different things. We were very different people. When we make the assumption that everything is the way I want things to be, then I can villainize that individual. But the truth is, there's divinity in him. He's a wonderful person, and I wish nothing but the best for him. That's recognizing the individuality between all of us. So honor that. So when I communicate with other people, and I am not sure that I am getting the whole picture, and I don't want to make any assumptions, there are certain cues and prompts that I've learned to use along the way. And some of them are, you know, I'm a big Brene Brown fan. So if you listen to her, she always says, tell me more about that. And I love that one. It's so easy to use. If someone is giving you the gift of information, of sharing a story with you, and you need some more information, instead of making an assumption, simply say, tell me more about that. Another one is, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're telling me blank, blank, diggy, blank, right? That's a really good one to use to make sure that you're not making an assumption. Because sometimes what is being said to us versus what we hear, we're filling in this narrative like in real time as it's happening. You know that conversation you have with yourself in your head while someone's talking to you? Yeah. Those are assumptions that are being made. If you really were to separate those tracks and listen to your inner dialogue versus what someone is telling you, it would be hilarious. You would find that there are judgments being made, there are questions that are had that are quickly filled in with false answers. These assumptions, they're, they're, it's a natural tendency that is just bred into the human collective. So it does take some work to check yourself to ask yourself if you're being objective. There's a practice called active listening in which you don't say a word and you let someone just talk to you and say what they need to say without saying one peep. 
when you do this, you'll hear, you'll hit that voice in your head will get louder and louder because you're like, these are the things I want to say, but I'm not supposed to say them right now. And it's hilarious, but it does get better as you practice this more and more, you can become more engaged in their listening, right? That's why it's called active listening. We're trying to quiet, tamper down that inner dialogue and really listen to what's being said. So for me in court, this is a big one. People, uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys would ask questions in court and my mind automatically wants to go and say, okay, I'm going to answer this question, but I know that what needs to be said, like they're going to ask this question next. This is the road we're going down, right? You try to anticipate where this is going, especially with defense attorneys, because there's always seems to be a method to their madness. I would find myself getting caught up in not being present in my testimony because I was actually thinking about where they were going. I was making a lot of assumptions. And so some of this work is helpful, number one, to, to say if I'm understanding you correctly or what I'm hearing you say is, can you rephrase the question? Let me make sure I understand what you're saying to me. That is invaluable when we're testifying. Number one, it slows things down. It gives us an opportunity to think about what we want to say as a response. It makes sure that we actually do understand for the court record, are we answering the question that's being asked? And we all know that many times prosecutors and defense attorneys ask questions in really funky ways. You know, it can be a very simple and direct question, but because they don't have the terminology quite right and they don't understand the science fully, perhaps the question that gets asked is awkwardly worded and perhaps doesn't make sense. Or this happens a lot in DNA, I'm sure in other disciplines, they'll ask a question and there are so many caveats to that question that they really wanted a simple yes or no answer, but I have to like give a whole dissertation to make sure that the jury isn't jumping to any false conclusions. These are really great, uh, especially for when we testify, as I said, but, but think about when we're speaking to our coworkers, when we're speaking to our supervisors. If someone's asking us to perform a task, it might be so simple and we can just say, yes, I understand that. But maybe just take a moment and check in and say, so here's an example. Let's run through this scenario. Here's what you're asking me to do. This is how I'm going to do it. The supervisor or the coworker might say, actually, no, that's not what I was asking you at all. It seems easy, but it's not always easy to do. So we just need to kind of, um, you know, with all of these, it's really about bringing the awareness to our behaviors and, and checking in with ourselves. When we make assumptions about others and also about ourselves, again, what it boils down to is making proper assessment. We make assumptions about other people, what they're thinking, what they're doing, and we might not take this time to clarify and ask a direct question. So here's an example. Uh, we need to remember that other people have personal lives and other stressors, other situations going on in their lives aside from just work. So a lot of times we just have a misunderstanding with our coworkers, for example, thinking that they're agitated, they're, they're just grumpy people, they're just lazy, they don't really want to do the work. You know, whatever it is that we might be thinking or feeling about these people, and there might be a whole nother story in the background. They might have a personal life crisis. They might have a family member who's sick. They might have a pet 
who is demanding a lot of attention. They might have children that are being uh, difficult or time-consuming to work with. It just is something that we need to take into consideration, and sometimes we forget. I am a person who can share my feelings and emotions and thoughts quite readily. You know, I'm, I'm an open book type person, but some of our coworkers aren't. And so they may be experiencing something and not willing to share, and they don't have to. It's their personal life. They don't have to explain anything to us. But we as colleagues do have the obligation to hold a little bit of space, even if we're giving them the privacy, right? This ability for them to, to shift their emotions a little bit outside of the norm, and we give them the slack to do it. Maybe we ask questions. Maybe we say, hey, is there anything I can do to help you? Do you need to talk? I'm here for you. Maybe we do say those things. And if they take that as an opportunity to share, then great. But if not, we don't make the assumption that their life is perfect and they're just a jerk at work. You know what I'm saying? So again, I'm a sharer. So I explained to my coworkers, I had a very traumatic and personal death in the family recently. And it was, there was no way it wasn't going to affect the work that I did. And I'm still working through it. It was my niece. She was 15. It was devastating. And my family is still working through it. If you know about her, she was a beautiful, beautiful soul who was severely multiple impaired. She was sick for her whole life, but she, she shined so brightly. She never spoke a single word and taught us more lessons, you know, than anyone that I've met. It's a big loss for my family. So I had to share that. I'm sharing it with you guys because it's the reason why there hasn't been an episode in a few months. I'm sharing the reason behind what you're seeing. You know, there's more to everybody's story. I had a little brain fog at work. I mean, of course I took some time off, but then when I came back, you know, I, I wasn't as clear-headed. I had to adjust some of the skills that I was working on. So in order to just make sure that my boss understood, make sure my coworkers understood, I'm working at a slower pace because I need some time. I'm, I don't have the clarity that I had a few weeks ago. And so I just need to move slowly so that my quality of work isn't affected. You know what I'm saying? So it's a personal choice whether we share or don't share. But we can always take the time to ask our coworkers if it's something that would be helpful to them to fill in those types of gaps. Another thing that I tend to do with my supervisor, I used to send these emails and the title, the subject line was, what's on Jen's plate? If we hadn't you know, had a meeting in a while, I would make sure that she knew what I was doing. So I'm active in maths and I'm also active with the union that we're involved with and so I typically would have other things on my plate aside from the assignments that she had given me. So it was my job to fill in the story for her. I didn't want her making assumptions that I was being lazy. Now we have, we do weekly meetings and we have roundtables, daily discussions. Some teams do, you know, these daily huddles. And so that allows us to make sure that we understand exactly what's on everybody's plate, exactly what everybody's intentions for the day are, and it holds us all a little bit more accountable, right? Once you tell someone that you're going to get something done, <laughs> then you tend to make sure that that gets done. All right, let's talk about 
actual casework. How do we make assumptions in our casework? Now we know that we're given a certain bit of information uh, depending on the case that we're working on, we may have more or less information. We may have police reports that we're looking at. We may have medical reports that we're looking at. But the, the question that I'm thinking of right now is, like, we have laboratory submission forms, right? So the agency will give us a form and give us some information about the case and a request for us to perform a certain amount of work. It's important that we make sure that we're not making assumptions about what is being asked. We take a look at the evidence and make sure that if the agency didn't request, let's say that something's eligible for DNA and latent prints, but they've only requested DNA. Let's not make the assumption that they knew latent prints was possible. And let's give them a call and, and give them all of the information and say, hey, we could do both or we could do one or the other. Actually, this item might be better for latent prints than it is for DNA. So I just wanted to make sure that you understood that before you made this request. That's the kind of thing that we can do to not make assumptions. If we make assumptions that everyone is, you know, at the same level we are forensically, keep in mind that law enforcement officers, they are experts not in forensic science. They are our customers. They are experts in law enforcement. So let's not assume that they know everything we know, everything that's possible in the lab, and let's reach out. Another thing that we can think about is our own interpretation of our procedure manuals. Sometimes we may have a gap in a procedure manual. So if we reach a point when we're doing some casework and we need a little bit more information, let's not make an assumption and fill in the gaps on our own. That can get us in trouble with an audit, right? That's how we can get gigged. If we're recognizing that there's a gap in the manual, that's when we reach out. We ask the questions, we ask a supervisor, we ask our technical leader, and that might lead to them making a change in the manual, which just shores up our, you know, the integrity of our manuals. Another big assumption that we make is this is the way we've always done it. Don't assume that the way you're doing things now is the best way to do things. Allow yourself that space for change and don't be afraid of it, right? In this world of forensics, we cannot afford to be afraid to admit if there's a better approach to handling or preserving evidence, to interpreting data, to conveying our results. So remember, if we assume that new equals challenging, then we will never grow, right? Remember that saying? If we think we know, then we cease to grow. Always allow ourselves the opportunity to have that space to grow into something bigger and better, especially with technology changing. You know, some of us are, are a little outside of our comfort zone as new technology comes into play, as we have to completely change the way we explain, you know, statistics to jurors, for example. Things are going to be a little difficult, but these Things are helping us to utilize our evidence in so much bigger and better ways, right? So the biggest one that I can think of in the DNA world is probabilistic genotyping. So to take evidence that we would normally have to say is inconclusive because it's too limited or too complex, and now we can use software system to help us to interpret and convey this data in a meaningful way to jurors is huge. But it was a big step and a big change for all of us. And we had to make 
sweeping changes in the way that we did casework and the way that we interpreted casework and in the way that we conveyed the results of that work. When you learn to stop making assumptions, you automatically become impeccable with your word. Think about that. So going back, impeccable with your word is agreement number one. When you learn to stop making assumptions, that means you're asking questions. That means you're digging in. You're getting more information. You are communicating cleanly and freely. So that's how these agreements, they all get tied up into one another. So don't make assumptions. If you check in with yourself, you'll probably recognize that we make a lot of them. One quick story because it, it really did, it rang true to me. I sent an email to someone higher up the chain in my command. And in that email, I asked, I said, I would like to be transparent with our communication. How would you like for me to continue communicating? How much would you like, you know, who, basically who should I CC on these emails as I'm providing information? And the response that I was given literally said the words, I assume you already got permission from the following people. And it doesn't matter what the topic was about. It was a trigger. When I read the words, I assume, right? Especially because my first communication was, I would like to know how to communicate more transparently. So I was asking questions. The response was, I assume. I was triggered and I immediately took it personally because I told you that's the one I'm working on the most. It affected me because the way I interpreted that response was I'm making an assumption, which means I don't have all the information and I'm not taking the time to ask you for that information. I'm just going to fill in the gaps with my own interpretation of what you did. And just think about that and think about maybe the times in which we do that without saying, I assume, but imagine how triggering it. Imagine if every time you say to someone, I assume blank, blank, blank you're saying to that person, I don't have all the information and I'm going to fill in the blanks for you, even if it's not true. And how would that make that person feel? So just think about that. And then let's move on to the next agreement, which is always do your best. Your best is going to change from moment to moment. It will be different when you are healthy as opposed to sick. Under any circumstance, simply do your best and you will avoid self-judgment, self-abuse, and regret. I love this one because it's the one that gives us a little cushion to fall into. It's the safety net under the tightrope of us trying to practice all of the other agreements. When we recognize that we're not always going to be perfect, in our attempts to do anything. But for the purposes of this conversation, these three other agreements, right? Practicing these agreements. It doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect, but if we're always putting in our best efforts, then we have nothing to worry about. There's no way we can judge ourselves. If we always did our best, we're okay. Think about, we talk to children this way. If they play on, you know, a soccer league and they didn't win and we say to them, but did you try your best and did you have fun? 
right? And they say they get a smile on their face and they say, yeah. And then they feel better about the fact that they weren't perfect and they didn't win the game. We talk to children like this, but we do not have the same expectations of ourselves and of others as adults. How funny is that? Simply trying to do our best. No more, no less, no judgments about what it looks like. By practicing this agreement, the other three agreements take shape because we'll practice through right action and develop a sense of self-compassion if we stumble or falter along the way. So keep in mind that our best is going to change from moment to moment. We have to keep checking in and asking ourselves what our best effort will look like in each situation we encounter. So going back to the example of you know, experiencing a death in my family. I knew suddenly my best was going to look very different than the best that I was performing at the week or so prior. I needed to have the self-compassion for myself because I have this really strong inner critic. Oh my God, you just worked way too long on that case. It was an easy open shut case. You should have gotten it done. And instead you made, you know, 16 typos in your report because I didn't have the clarity. I had so much going on, so much on my mind. So giving myself this space to say, uh, these are not the tasks that I should be working on, right? These, these technical tasks, like when I'm having an off day like that, I do not go into the lab. <laughs> I will just say that right now, right? That is not the time to go extract some DNA samples. That is the time to check up on emails, to look at other projects, do some readings, these are the, the times that we have to know ourselves well enough to know when we're at our best. Morning versus midday versus evening. Early week to midweek. Certain times of the month, certain times of the year, we're going to be more productive than we are others. So I've really gotten to, again, it goes back to making a proper assessment. And I've learned that I'm going to have times in which I'm really productive and have really great clarity. And then I'm going to have times in which I'm not so much and I organize my work accordingly. I just know when I produce the highest quality work and when I don't and what's going on, and then I honor that. You know, my best will absolutely vary within the day, week, month, year, and so I adjust expectations of myself accordingly. So again, we really have these jobs, right, where this level of precision and accuracy is so important. We've got to make sure that we're choosing to be most, most productive with the physical aspects of casework in times when our clarity is at its peak. Anybody who's gone into the lab to do a highly technical task when they have a lot going on internally has probably experienced that it was not the best situation. There's a reason why we have limits on the amount of time that we can process crime scenes late into the evening without taking a moment to rest because our quality of work is going to be highly diminished if we're not properly taking care of ourselves. We might be doing our best, but our best is not going to be that great, right? So we have to take care of ourselves in those, in those ways. I have to know that when I have these lower productivity type days, my off days or a slow week, Rather than push myself and sacrifice the quality of my first pass results, I know myself well enough to know that that time will pass and then I will get right back on track and I tend to be highly productive. So if you were to take a look at my productivity, right, if you were to look at my metrics, I know that it's like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, and that's the way that I work. 
Now I have colleagues that might just be a constant steady plateau and that's just how they are. Great, it's not me, right? So I have to know myself and then not judge myself, not bang myself up because as long as I'm doing my best, that's that's all I can ask myself for. And that's really all our colleagues can ask, all of our supervisors can ask is that we're doing our best. So, yeah, going into metrics, I have a lot to say about the positive and negatives of metrics and quotas, but let's just say that no matter what the magic number is, realize that if you set your goals to be more than what your best effort is capable of accomplishing, then you're setting yourself up for failure. So that's kind of the example I just gave, that if I tell myself I have to write so many cases every week, and then I have a week where it's just not in my best interest to be writing cases, but I force myself to do it, I'm asking myself to fail. I'm wasting energy, and in the end, I feel like my best wasn't good enough. And then I have negative thoughts and feelings, the inner critic gets really loud in my head, and I don't feel good about myself, and I don't enjoy my work, and I I get myself like in a rut, really into a rabbit hole, and I've got to climb myself out of it. So I don't do that anymore. I just really am able to recognize that there are just some some times in which my metrics will be a little bit lower, but I'm going to try my best. No matter what I put out that week, I'm going to try to make sure that it's of the best quality, even if it's of lower quantity. And I'm not going to compare myself to the version of myself that I was yesterday or the one that I think should be showing up today. And I'm definitely not going to compare myself to coworkers. Because again, remember, we're all individuals. We all have stuff going on that's different. And so we're not in the same place. Even if we have the same job, we're not in the same place. So if you can create the solid habit of always doing your best, your practices can produce high quality work and you will never have to experience self-judgment, guilt, or regrets. Quality over quantity. Doing what you ought to do. Not focusing on the fruits of the effort, but the actual work itself. All right. So we've planted seeds with this information and ideas, but nothing is going to grow unless we start to take action. Thoughts precede action and taking actions routinely builds strength in the habit. And this is how we create new agreements. So if you have listened to both episodes and you understand all four of these agreements and you think they sound great and you know that you maybe are practicing them sometimes but not all the times, then you recognize, right? When you know better, you do better. So now you can start to recognize when you're following the agreements, when you're not. Ask yourself, do these agreements serve you? So there is no need to take up uh, a new habit if you don't think that these agreements will be helpful to you. I happen to think they will be. I think they're universally helpful. I wish everyone on the planet could practice these. We would have like, you know, utopia. But it's difficult. This work is difficult and change is hard and it's also slow. So the first step to making any change begins with awareness. Recognize when you're following when you're not following, and always do your best. So try to put these agreements into play. Maybe work is too challenging of an environment to start practicing them. Maybe we start practicing them you know, at home with family members or friends. I happen to 
practice them in all areas of my life, but I really have devoted a lot of time to practicing them at work. I have a sticky note, I told you, on my computer, and now I work from home, I have one at home too. <laughs> so I honestly, honestly put the effort in to practice these. And I hope that some of my coworkers have noticed a change in me over the last you know, few years. And I have had some challenges at work where sometimes it has been very difficult to practice these, but I was still working on them. And those are the times in which doing my best really saved the day. I'm telling you, it's the safety net for all of these. Also, we need to recognize that some of us have old agreements that we've made with ourselves. Remember that we've been born, raised, conditioned to believe and follow, and some of those may need to be broken in order to create the space to follow these new agreements. I will leave that for each one of you to contemplate, reflect on, and think about what old behavioral patterns we might have that might not be serving us and how we can best try to break them. Hopefully we can create the space to fill them with these agreements or other agreements that resonate with you. If you haven't read the book, The Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom by Don Miguel Ruiz, I really, really recommend it. Again, I say I read it at least once a year. I keep reminders all around and I really can say that I've put in the work and I have felt the effects from it. I can't recommend it enough. If you have questions about it, feel free to reach out. Um, there's lots of resources. Um, you know, Domingo Ruiz is active on social media platforms, has a website, so you can check it out. If you have some questions, you can always reach out to me. I would love to share a conversation with you about it. Good luck. Take care. Namaste.